This is the fifth of five uh, talks looking at Romans chapters 9 through 11. Chapters 9 through 11, as you'll know if you've been here, are all about Israel. They're all about the status of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, in the period after the Lord Jesus. And they are, without a doubt, complicated chapters. There is a lot of stuff in here that is hard to understand. There's a lot of stuff in here that even when we do understand it, is frankly hard to accept. And many people would say these chapters are substantially irrelevant to the whole book of Romans. Now, I've said this every week, but I'll say it again. They're really, really not. Paul didn't, as a rule, write loads of irrelevant stuff in his letters. The issue of Israel is really, really important to Paul, and it's really important to this letter. Now, because these uh, chapters 9 through 11 really hang together, it would be useful to just do a very brief recap. Um, We saw, back at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul's deep pain, deep personal pain, over the fact that not many Jews had accepted the Lord Jesus. Not many Jews had come into the church. The church was already, in Paul's lifetime, becoming a largely Gentile affair. And that was painful to Paul. He loved his people. He wanted to see them saved. But it also raised a big theological problem for him. God made loads of promises to Israel through the Old Testament. Has he kept them? Or has he been unfaithful? Has the covenant failed? Have God's promises been broken? And we saw from uh, the middle of chapter 9 onwards that God has been faithful. He has kept his promises. But he is free in showing mercy. He's not obliged to show mercy to anyone. He is free in doing it. And we've started to see that God has a plan. It is not a random event that Israel has rejected their Messiah. It's not something that has happened outside of God's control. He has a plan for it, even for their disobedience. And it is the plan that is driving history. We're going to see more of that today. And we've already seen that that part of that plan is that God has, in fact, preserved a remnant for himself within Israel. There are Jews who have believed in Christ and have come into the church. And Paul sees that as a sign of God's ongoing commitment to Israel and as a promise that God isn't finished with them, that there are going to be things happening in the future for Israel. And that's what we're going to see more of today. Now, I should say, my interpretation of these chapters is controversial in the Christian world. Any interpretation of this chapter is controversial in the Christian world. So I'm going to put out there what I think it is saying in the context of the book and of the whole of Scripture. Um, And I'm happy for you to come back at me afterwards and uh, tell me that I'm wrong. I don't promise that I will change my opinion as a result. Okay, so we pick up in verse 7. We've just established uh, in the first few verses of chapter 11 that there is a remnant a relatively small remnant of Israel that has come into the church and believes. But for Paul, that raises this question. Well, I mean, he just phrases it as, what then? But what he's saying is, is that it? Is that tiny remnant all there is going to be? Because the situation is this. 
The people of Israel sought righteousness. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. They sought to be right with God by keeping the law, but they did not obtain righteousness. What they sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. Now, Paul says, that elect remnant, that remnant chosen by grace who believed in Christ, they did obtain righteousness. But the rest, he says, not only did not obtain it, but like Pharaoh back in chapter 9, they were hardened in their natural unbelief. And that is God's judgment. And he quotes a couple of um, things from the Old Testament. One is a blend from Deuteronomy and Isaiah, and the, the other one is from a psalm. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail about that. But the point is that they sound pretty damning. Uh, David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. And I think it's probably the forever at the end of that quotation that leads Paul into his next point. Is it forever? Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Is that it? Is that the end of Israel's story? A tiny remnant preserved, but the rest lost forever. Well, Paul says no. In fact, he says, not at all, no way, not a chance. There is still a plan. And then he goes on to explain what God is doing with the rest of history between the first coming of Christ and his return at the end of all things. And the plan basically has four sort of movements to it. I'm just going to uh, outline it briefly. Firstly, when the gospel is preached, when the good news about Jesus and the righteousness that is available by faith in him is preached, Paul says, Israel rejected it. Not all, but as a whole, Israel rejected that gospel message. But in so doing, they caused the Gentiles to hear it. Now, Paul is probably reflecting on his own missionary experience. If you read through the book of Acts, again and again, when Paul arrives in a city, he goes to the synagogue, preaches the gospel to the Jews. He believes that it's sort of, they have first dibs on it. And it's only when the Jews in the synagogue reject the gospel that Paul moves next door, sets up a, a, a lecture hall and starts preaching to the Gentiles. And actually, the book of Acts ends in that way. Paul is in prison in Rome. He calls the Jewish leaders in Rome to him, tells them about Christ, and when they are not that interested, to put it politely, he says, from now on, the message is going to the Gentiles. Now, we know he's not saying it is no longer going to the Jews at all, but he is saying something is happening in God's plan that is driving the gospel from the Jews who have rejected it to the Gentiles who will embrace it. It's the first movement in the plan. And you pick it up in verse 11, verse 15. Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Okay, so that's happened. And then Paul says, the Gentiles' acceptance of the gospel will cause Israel to be envious Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. 
Uh, envy, not a particularly noble thing, and as a rule we would probably be against it. Uh, but if something is good and is something that you ought to have, maybe it's not so wrong. And Paul is saying, what should happen, what is going to happen in God's plan, is that as the Gentiles embrace the gospel and start to live it out and enjoy the righteousness and the new life that is given them in Christ, Israel will be jealous and will start to look into that themselves. Which leads into the third movement. He talks about the fullness of Israel coming in, their full inclusion. Talks about it at the end of uh, verse 12 and, and a bit further down as well. Now I need to talk about that a bit more later on. But what he seems to be envisaging is this. As Israel sees the Gentile church, or the largely Gentile church, their envy will drive them also to embrace the gospel. So it's not a kind of bad envy, it's just looking at the church and saying, there is something that we want. And then Paul sees this fourth movement where further blessing overflows to the Gentiles because of the inclusion of Israel. If their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches, he says, will their full inclusion bring? When Israel comes in, that will mean even greater blessing for the Gentiles. And actually, he defines that, uh, that blessing quite closely in, in verse 15. Their acceptance will be life from the dead. So, Paul is looking forward to the end. And I think it's fair to say he envisages a time when many, many Jews will believe in Christ. And at that point, he says, that is when we can expect the return of Christ, the resurrection from the dead. More on that later as well. Sorry, there's going to be a lot of more on that later. Now this, says Paul, has to happen. It has to happen because if part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. That sounds a bit obscure. What he's probably got in his mind is the idea that God made a covenant with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And that covenant is unbreakable. So if, if they were made holy by God's word, it must still be the case that their seed are holy as well. Hey, he might have Deuteronomy in the back of his mind. Quite often in, De in Deuteronomy, when God is explaining to Israel why they have been given the land, he's very keen to point out it's not because you're great or because you're righteous or because you're strong. It's because the Lord had mercy on you and chose you and remembered the covenant that he made with your fathers. He's always looking back. God chose to make a promise and he's going to keep it. That's the plan that God is driving forward through history. It's like uh, grace ping-pong, really. Israel rejects the gospel and grace goes over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles receiving grace causes Israel to respond to the gospel and to receive grace. Israel receiving grace causes the Gentiles to receive the overflowing grace that comes when the fullness of God's kingdom is ushered in at the return of Christ. I think it's quite neat. Now, 
Um, this is all a bit abstract and weird, isn't it? I'm afraid it's going to stay abstract and weird for a little bit, and then at the end I'm going to say, so what? And I'll try to unpack so what a little bit. Paul has an illustration, and his illustration is the olive tree. He says there's an olive tree, and uh, some of the branches of the olive tree have been snapped off. And in their place, branches from uncultivated olives have been grafted in. And he says, the olive tree is Israel. Now, the olive tree was an accepted symbol of Israel. And they used it, so they, they would have known that. The olive tree is Israel. And he says, as of now, branches that belong to that olive tree have been removed. They have been removed because of unbelief. And uncultivated branches, that is, Gentiles who don't belong in the olive tree, have been grafted in and joined to the tree. That is the way Paul understands what is happening. Now, there's a few important things to notice about that. Paul does not think that the church has replaced Israel in God's purposes. In fact, as far as Paul is concerned, Israel continues in the church. There is a sense in which Israel was always characterised by a people within a people. Paul said earlier in Romans, they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And that faithful people within Israel, Paul says, continues in the church which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So to say anything like the church has replaced Israel is a, is a nonsense. It doesn't make sense to Paul. That would be, if, if that were the case, he'd have to have a different illustration. It would go like this. There was an olive tree. God chopped it down and planted a new one. Right? That would be his illustration. But he doesn't say that. The olive tree continues. Now, there are a few points that he wants to make out of this illustration, and they're actually quite practical ones. The first one is this. If you're a Gentile Christian, he says, don't be arrogant. And he imagines a few ways in which they might be arrogant. They might be arrogant because they look out and say, look, the Jews have fallen away, but we're the faithful ones, we're the good ones. And we know, actually, that it didn't take very long after Paul's death for Christians to start thinking like that. Um, if you pick up uh, some second century texts like uh, the Epistle of Barnabas, not written by Barnabas, um, it's full of that stuff. That's what it's all about, about how Christians are massively superior to Jews. It's not something that Paul would tolerate or understand. He says, don't think you're superior. And he imagines um, the Gentile Christian turning around and saying, but Paul... God removed branches from the olive tree, especially so that I could be joined in. Paul says, sure, but that was because they were unbelieving. And if you do not continue believing and remain in God's kindness and mercy, be aware that God could break you off just as easily. See what he's saying? Don't be arrogant. Don't look at Israel and see their stumbling and think, I am better Look at Israel and see their stumbling and think, I need to be careful. I need to make sure I remain in the olive branch. And there's also this. Don't be arrogant because, consider this, you don't support the root, but the root supports you. You, if you're a Gentile Christian, have been grafted into God's people, which already existed in Israel. You have joined in with a covenant tradition 
that stretches back to Abraham and beyond. That covenant supports you and gives you spiritual life, not the other way around. Don't be arrogant. And then his other key point is this. The branches that have been broken off can be grafted back in. So you see, he's starting to answer the question of, is Israel stumbling full and final by saying, no. Even individual Jews who have not believed in Christ can be grafted back into the olive tree. Because God is able to do that. In fact, it is easier for God to do that than it is for him to bring in a Gentile Christian with no background. That's his illustration. And then we turn to the future. I'm sort of verse 25-ish here. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited, he says. Now, a mystery in Paul is not... um, you know, something that you need a detective to discover. In fact, it's something that a detective never could discover. Because for Paul, a mystery is something that you would not know if God had not revealed it. And what Paul says God has revealed is that there is a glorious future for Israel. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. This partial hardening, and we know from uh, earlier chapters that it's quite a substantial hardening. The majority of Israel are hardened. But this partial hardening will be undone. Paul says, when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, then Israel will come in as well. And uh, it's interesting the way he uses that word fullness or, or the full number of the Gentiles. Uh, it's what he also talked about um, with uh, Israel earlier on, which I've currently lost, sorry. Verse 12, he talks about their full inclusion, literally their fullness. So he's, he has these, these two ideas here. He's got almost two quotas. When the fullness of Gentiles have come in, then the fullness of Israel will come in as well. doesn't necessarily mean each and every individual, but it means a great number And so when he says, all Israel will be saved, again, I think we should think of that fullness, not necessarily of every individual Jewish person. And this future, where all Israel is saved, has its basis in God's election. They're loved on account of the patriarchs, as far as election is concerned. Not because of anything that they have done. In fact, they're unbelieving at this time. But they are chosen people, and they remain so. God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Ultimately, God's plan is this. To show that all are disobedient, Jews and Gentiles, and all are dependent on God's free mercy. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, that he may have mercy on them all. That's where history is going, according to Paul. So what? Um, This is all jolly obscure and odd, and uh, not the sort of thing that we talk about very much. 
I think we don't talk about it very much because um, it's weird to us and because it's been abused in different ways in different parts of the church. There are lots of ways, actually, in which these um, chapters have been abused. In all seriousness, the most obvious way in which they've been abused is that they've been ignored by the church. And consequently, we have a couple of thousand years of pretty shocking anti-Semitism from uh, Christian people who did not look at their Bibles, who took up that arrogant position towards the Jews, which Paul is absolutely ruling out in this chapter. That is shocking. And it makes it really hard for us to read what Paul is actually saying. It makes it hard for us to read about Israel being cut off and hardened. Because it's so difficult for us to avoid reading in the anti-Semitism of the last 2,000 years and colouring that statement in a really negative way. We just need to always bear in mind, this is Paul, the Jew, who at the beginning of chapter 9 has said that if it were possible, he would be cut off from Christ so that his people could be saved. He's not indifferent to their fate. He's not somebody who doesn't care about them. When we ignore these chapters, we can also lose the sense that God is actively driving history. Um, Sometimes, I think we're tempted to to think of the world like this. Are you familiar with deism? Deism is the idea that God at the beginning basically wound up the world and then just left it ticking and hasn't really had anything much to do with it since then. You know, he sort of set it in motion and then stood back watched it, see what would happen. Um, I think Christians can be sort of semi-deists. What I mean by that is, we know that God has intervened in history. It's all through the Bible. We know that he's intervened in a climactic and massive way in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his resurrection from the dead. But then we kind of think, after that, he stepped back and just let it run to see what would happen. We don't bother to try to interpret what God is doing in history now. But Paul says it is not like that. It's not like a wind-up train. History isn't just sort of wound up at the beginning by God and then left to run. God is, is in the driving seat of history. He's doing something. See, this, this dynamic movement that Paul sees between Jew and Gentile and Gentile and Jew shows that God is at work now, bringing about his purposes. It's not just that he did some stuff way back when and we're very grateful for it. He's doing stuff here and now. There's a purpose to all of the random stuff that we see on the news. God is working. Um, As I've said, another reason we uh, ignore well, we ignore these chapters, is because they are abused. And one, of, one other way that they're abused is that they're used for political ends. Not specifically these chapters, perhaps, although they come into it. Did you know that um, the, uh, the Billy Graham Foundation, I've got a lot of time for Billy Graham and his foundation, before the last 
US presidential election, uh, took out full-page ads encouraging people to vote for people who held biblical values and supported the state of Israel. And no questions asked support of the state of Israel has become a badge of orthodoxy in some Christian circles. If you really believe the Bible, you will support the state of Israel. I um, flipped through a book in uh, a local Christian bookshop uh, which purported to show that whenever American negotiators had um, tried to encourage the Israeli government to cede land, for example, to the Palestinians, um, something catastrophic had happened in America within five minutes. Uh, sometimes it was a traffic accident, sometimes it was a shooting, sometimes it was a natural disaster. I thought that was statistically questionable. Uh, I would have been interested to see how often things like that happened just in general. Um, I suspect you could tabulate pretty much anything against it and show some sort of causation. Um, but anyway, it matters because this is driving what is... People's opinions about Israel are driving what is happening in the real world in really quite unpleasant ways. Consequently, we don't really like to talk about Israel in case we're seen to be lumped together with, with that. But I hope you can see that that is not what Paul is doing. God's plan is not driven by uh, F-16s over Tel Aviv. God's plan is driven by the progress of the gospel. What is really shaping history, behind all of the stuff on the news, is the good news of Jesus going out and going out and going out. That is what is driving history. And it matters that we, we be prepared to say that that includes, and especially includes, Jewish people. We need to not be scared of that. Actually, um, Tom Wright helpfully says that for, for some people now, um, to talk about Israel in that way is considered uh, anti-Semitic. But for Paul, not to talk about Israel in that way would have been considered massively anti-Semitic. To leave Israel out of God's plans for the gospel would be a terrible thing to do. Linked to that sort of political question, there's a theological one. Um, you've probably not heard of dual covenantalism, and there's no reason why you should have done. But uh, it's quite important. Um, it's a wrong idea, he says, humbly uh, giving his own opinion, that assumes that Israel is saved in one way, and Gentiles are saved in another way. And there are Christian organisations who would seriously say, and they are numerous, these people, would seriously say, you must not evangelise Jews. Because Jews do not need to become Christians. They will be saved as Jews. Because God has two covenants going on. The covenant with Abraham and with the Jewish people, and the covenant that is fulfilled in Christ for the Gentiles. This might, I mean, I can, I can see that a few of you are thinking, what is this? Seriously, this is big stuff on the other side of the Atlantic and it's coming our way. We need to be aware of it and we need to know why it's wrong. 
I hope you can see that from these chapters, Paul would say that is horrifically wrong. Israel pursued righteousness by the law. They didn't get it. It wasn't there for them because they didn't realise that the law pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is only in him. Paul has been so clear on that. Everyone sinned. Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone. So if you hear people telling you otherwise, um, don't listen to them. Now, you might be thinking, you started this little section by saying, so what? And uh, still in the back of my mind, there's this question, so what? Because this all seems very irrelevant to me. I hope it stays irrelevant to you for the whole of your life, but I suspect that it won't, um, because this type of thinking is coming our way. But let me give you something which is more directly relevant. What Paul wants for Gentile Christians, and I assume that the majority of us here are Gentile Christians, if not all of us, is that they should have humility. Throughout these chapters, and actually throughout the book of Romans, once you read it with these chapters in mind, you see the gospel is for the Jew first. For the Jew first. Again and again and again that comes up. Christ belongs to the Jewish people. We kind of need to be okay with that. We need to be okay with the fact that God's plans don't revolve around me. And that for me to be involved in God's plan involves me being grafted into Israel. That is humbling, actually. But it's important that we be humbled in that way. But then Paul also wants to drive us to gratitude. To the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. That didn't have to happen. That is God's grace. That wild olive shoots, uncultivated and useless like us, should be grafted into God's people, is astonishing grace. Paul calls us to be thankful. Now, when... um, Dan picks this up again next week. I'm just going to completely quit the pitch for a sermon. Enjoy. Um, When you hit chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, is this mercy that Paul has in mind. Yes, all the stuff in chapters 1 to 8. All of that as well. But also this. That in history... God has graciously chosen to bring you into his people, into his ancient covenant people with whom he sustains a relationship of love through Jesus Christ so that you can know him forever and look forward to the day when with the fullness of his people, Gentile and Jew, you will enjoy the resurrection of the dead and the presence of Christ.